On this episode of Serverless Chats, I finish my conversation with Michael Hart about pushing the limits of Lambda. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 19. All right, so now... We're gonna to go to the next level stuff, um, right? So if you're, if you've been, that's not next level enough for you. Well, that's what I'm saying. Right. If you made it this far, right. um, I hate to tell you what we just talked about was kids stuff. Right. All right, we're going, we're going to the next level. All right, so you have been working on a new project um, called Yumda, right? right? Tell us about this because this thing is this blows my mind. <laughs> right. So um, this is basically. What was was born out of the realization that um, people, you know, have struggled traditionally to get things compiled, uh, native native binaries or anything like that compiled for Lambda. Um, for example, if you do want to write a, a CI system like LambCI, then you will need some sort of Git um, binary or, or or a Git library. But I would suggest using the Git binary because libgit is just not there with all the features um, but you know you'll need a git binary running on your lambda so you can do a git clone of the repo that you're then going to do your ci tests on um, and it getting getting that on amazon linux one was kind of hard enough getting it on amazon linux two is much harder because um, there are there are so many fewer um, dependencies that exist there um, I think on Amazon Linux one, it already had it has curl on it. You know, if you're running mm-hmm. Node.js eight, I think you you can just shell out to curl. So, uh, a Git has curl as a dependency. So, if you were compiling Git for, um, you know, the older runtimes, you didn't need to worry about curl or anything like that. You just need to worry about Git. Um, on Amazon Linux two, you don't have curl. You don't have like some really really basic um, system libraries. So. If you want to get Git running on Amazon Linux 2, um, you need to pull in a lot of stuff yourself. Um, and I, I got to thinking, well, what, what would be the best way to provide, you know, a bunch of pre-built packages out of the box? Yes, you could use uh, layers. And I think layers are a great idea for very high level um, packages, you know, very, very large binaries that have a huge tree of dependencies or, or certain utilities but it's it's impractical to be creating a layer for every single um, dependency that your native binary is going to use you, you don't want to be creating one layer for libcurl and another layer for libfsh and another layer for this firstly you're only limited to five layers that you can, you can currently use in your lambda so you'd need to be squashing them together anyway um, and and secondly, it's just layers. Certainly, as they stand at the moment, they're not. It's there's no particularly good discovery around them. Install, you know, um, it's nothing like doing an npm install or a yum install or something like that. Um, well, and I would also think that that many of those layers that you, if you have installed five layers, that a lot of those might be sharing dependencies under the hood as well. Like they might have shared right. dependencies. And then right, are you installing, true. you might be installing those twice or three times. I don't know if they would right, right. Could or they be they're clashing separate. Or... Yeah. No, no. You, but anyway, sorry. Right. Um, no, no. So, so that's another consideration. So I thought, well, ideally what people want to do, and this is certainly what, what people do in the container world. If, you, if you're writing a Docker container, 
um, you know, one of the first, and, and you need native dependencies, one of the first steps you'll do in your Docker file is you'll do yum install whatever dependency I need. Um, and that'll go down and it'll pull all the sub-dependencies and, and then it'll that'll be installed in your Docker container and then you can, um, you know, run your app from there knowing that this stuff exists. Um, we don't have anything like that for Lambda. Um, so I thought, well, I want to run yum install um, essentially, um, and have all those packages, all those Amazon Linux 2 packages that are there, um, you know, why, why can't I just get them um, and install them from, for Lambda? And, and the reason that you can't do that is when you run a yum install, it installs um, in the in the system directories, it, in, it installs software in slash user, you know, um, slash bin or slash user slash lib64 if it's a, um, if it's a dynamic library. Um, and you can't install that uh, to those places on lambda you can only install to if if you're using layers slash opt um so slash opt slash bin is in the path and slash opt slash lib is in the ld library path which is where dynamic libraries get loaded from um so you need to make sure that your binaries in your dynamic library sit in those paths um that that's where they'll be unzipped to essentially um when your layer is mounted um, or slash var slash task if you've bundled them up with your with your lambda function. Um, so you need to make sure that the binaries that you're shipping and the and the dynamic libraries that you're shipping are okay living in those paths. And there's a lot of um, binaries and libraries out there that aren't. You can't just copy them from um, slash user slash uh, bin to slash op slash bin because something's being compiled into that binary that is assumed that it's living in slash user slash bin. Um, there, there are a bunch that you can just um, move around, um, and and that is a, that is a, a good first you know test. You may as well try it out, see if you can move a library from here to there or move a binary from here to there. Um, but there might just be something down the track um, while you're using it where it's suddenly like, hey, I can't find this file, or or maybe it's depending on a configuration file um, in a path that's been hard coded as well, um, and you can't get your configuration file to that path because. Um, it's not writable by you. Um, so, so what I did was I took the Amazon Linux RPMs, um, and you can get, you know, they they all the all these RPMs open source. You can get the source RPMs for them. The RPM is um, is the sort of Red Hat package manager format um, for what a native package looks like on on Red Hat Linux and um, all of its various children including Amazon Linux um, which which sort of stemmed from Red Hat. So RPMs are what yum what yum install will use um, to install. So I, I pulled all these RPMs down and then, and then I just recompiled them instead of instead of um, slash user being the path they were compiled for, um, compiled them for slash opt. Um, so then you know I had all these packages that I'd recompiled um, and then I created just a little a little Docker uh, container that has yum on it um, that is configured to install these uh, these RPMs in the right place because you also, the way that you, if you ever do want to in yum install a package um, in a non-system directory, you have to provide a bunch of configuration to it to let it know that you're doing that. Um, so so I sort of pre-configured all that and to talk to the to the yum repo that I had set up and that sort of thing. So, so basically I... I've you know created a little Docker container where you can just do yum install git and it will pull down git and all of its dependencies, everything that's been compiled for a slash opt environment, 
um, and it'll install it all you know, in a directory of your choosing, which you could then zip up and create a layer from, um, basically. Or, or you could also bundle it into your Lambda if you wanted to as well. But um, typically, I think people will want to create layers. But the idea, um, the idea would be is that if you wanted Git and SSH and a couple of these mm-hmm. other things, you compile, you can compile all of those or combine those all into one layer, right? So right. you just have one layer, and and you're right. gonna, you, you have some limitations there, uh, you know, like package sizes. So obviously you couldn't install the moon, um, right. right? You'd need to you'd be a little bit. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, you're still limited. At least currently, I think the the limit is 250 megabytes or something. Um, you know, as the total package size that you can have. Right. So yes, you're still limited to that. So basically, there's those two sides. So you have your own sort of yum repo that you've right. that you've built around right, this, right, right. The, um, and the, then yeah, yeah, no, no, you're you're absolutely right. So it's a yum repo, which is which is literally just um, it, it, it's where all the packages live. Um, yeah. you know, they're, they're they're up on the web in, in S3 somewhere. Um, so there's that part of it all the recompiled packages that live up there. Um, and then the other part is, okay, that's fine. They live up there, but, but how do you tell yum to you, a use that as a, as the repo to pull the packages down and B to make sure that they know to install into, into slash opt, um, right. which, which you in Docker, you know, you, you kind of, you mount a local directory, um, into a, into a directory in the container, um, and that's that's how you would do it. I, I could, uh, you know, I'm tossing with the idea of turning this into a, a CLI so that you could, um, yeah. you wouldn't need to run, worry about the docker run command. But it's a pretty basic command. It's basically just docker run yumda yum install package, you know, and then packages. And, and it'll discover all the dependencies that it needs and, and make sure that they're all there and all installed in the right places as well. And sort of the long-term goal here would be to open up that repo, right? So other people right. could compile and, and put it in there. And you've, but you've got a really good start. Like how many how many um, uh, packages do you have already? Right, yeah. So I've compiled 868 packages so far. Um, it, because the process is relatively easy um, to convert. Uh, basically, usually um, the way that RPM packages are compiled, they use a spec file, um, which... I guess is akin to like a Docker file or something like that. Um, if you're in that land, um, a spec file that says, okay, how's this package going to be compiled? And it, it tries to use variables for things like what's the top level directory, you know, and and things like that. Um, and, and a lot of spec files, the way they've been written is pretty good and they don't have any hard coded paths or anything like that. So, um, as long as you recompile and you pass in the right variables, um, it'll just work without even needing to modify any of the source, basically any of the source code. Um, there are a couple of packages which, you know, have just assumed made these, these hard coded assumptions that it's going to be installed in slash user because that's where everyone stores everything. Um, and, and so they, you know, I needed to modify um, some things there, but I think the, the long-term goal would be, okay, yeah, release this, um, release, the 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 repo and, and and the packages and then give instructions about how people could create their own repo. I think so. One thing about um, because I tossed around with the idea of is is there another package manager that would be better for this? Would yeah. would it make sense to npm install um, you know uh, native dependencies? And you certainly could do that. Um, mm-hmm. But it would require rewriting a bunch of stuff. Um, there, there would be some advantages in that, um, you know, other people could then just npm publish and 
and that sort of thing. Yum, you know, and RPM, they're, they're much older systems. They don't, they're not as, it's not quite as easy as that um, to just pu- publish your own package. Um, you need to kind of host your own Yum repo. But I think, yeah, so I'd provide instructions about how you'd want to do that. And then obviously um, try to accept as many, um, as many sort of pull requests and, and ideas for, hey, I, I want this package um, and that sort of thing. I, I think that's, that's, that's the reason that I haven't released this yet is because I keep, I keep thinking about, do I really want uh, this to be on my plate? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what, what's the best way to sort of tell people, look, I'm happy maintaining a certain you know, number of, of packages and some core, some obviously some core things that you might need. Um, but I don't, I don't know if I want to be, you know, I don't know if I want to be brew or some, you know, homebrew or something like right. that. Um, yeah. But yeah. But listen, I, I, the, the thing though about this is that if people don't realize how powerful this is, I mean, just think about the ability to quickly and easily compile a layer that has Git or SSH and, and a lot of the use cases, the, the packages that you've done, um, you know, they play into like a use case like CICD, but at the same yeah. time, you were telling me about some of these ones that you have. I mean, you did like graphics magic for um, right. image yeah, manipulation. Yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah, and, exactly. So there's image manipulation, there's sound conversion, you know, yeah, that you might want to do. There's video yeah. conversion. Um, all of these sorts of things are all going to re- require native binaries basically um, because they're, they're difficult things to do. Um um, P- PDF rendering, um, things yeah. like that, and 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 Goiko, who you mentioned earlier, he's he's done a lot of exploration on this. But you know, I remember on Twitter watching him bang his head about uh, against the wall about just how hard it is to figure out how to compile some of these things um, for that restricted environment. So this would really allow you to, um, you know, um, pull in a lot of these pieces um, that you might need. But you've but you've got runtimes compiled. You've got like Apache and MySQL. So you right, could literally right, yeah, my, use I've a got serverless. MySQL, Postgres. <laughs> so um, you could use you could use a Lambda function to spin up and test right. all. You do integration testing on your your Lamp stack project. I right, hundred percent correct. It's, it's yes. kind of wild. Yeah, I've got PHP and Python compiled and a whole bunch of things. Yep, yep. You could you could run MySQL locally on Lambda and. Um, and I, I actually think it wouldn't be as crazy as it sounds. You know, a, a lot of these systems aren't that, you know, a lot of them have options for, hey, just start with an in-memory database or, or something like that. Um, start up, you know, because people, people do do integration testings uh, with, with these servers. Um, so, yeah. Crazy. All right. So, listen, we've been talking for a very, very long time, but there's another thing that is even more, I don't know, I don't know if this is higher level than what we just talked about. Um, <laughs> you wrote an article earlier this year called Massively Parallel Hyperparameter Optimization on AWS Lambda. Right. And you you were using um, this ASHA technique or some paper that you read. And now I would say this is above me, this is above my head too. So everything you're saying, I was reading the article, uh, glassy eyed, like not sure where I was, um, you know, but this is just really, really cool. And so maybe for my benefit and maybe for some of the listeners, you could explain what you did as if I was a five-year-old. Sure. So so um, basically, um, I wanted to... There's a machine learning um, tool out there called Fast Text, which is for 
categorizing text. You know, uh, spam is the classic example of this. This text is spam, this text isn't spam, this text is spam, this text isn't spam. Um, we, we do a lot of that, uh, that sort of thing at Bustle. You know, we, we might use it to aid us in, in saying, okay, this article belongs in this particular category or vertical. This article belongs in this one. Um, and, and you typically, you, you, you often have a bunch of training data. So here's, here's data where we've, we've had humans come along and manually label this stuff. Um, and they, and they might have done, you know, if you're lucky, a few thousand um, articles like this, but then we've got 300,000 articles that we need classified. It's just, it's, it's, you know, it's, it would be incredibly tedious to get people to try and classify them all. Machine learning's great at this, um, so let's do that. But you need to sort of train a machine learning model to do that. Um, and machine learning models are, are quite finicky in terms of what works on one data set might not work on another. You might have to tune... Um, certain certain parameters about the way that the machine learning algorithm runs, you know, the the way in this case this binary that runs the machine learning algorithm, um, the way that it runs is a bunch of bunch of parameters that you pass to it um, that affect how good it's going to be on a particular data set. Um, so so you essentially need to tune it. That process is called hyperparameter tuning. It's the idea of um, okay, I want to ad- adjust the parameters to this algorithm so that it sort of suits our, our data set the best. Um, and there are a number of ways of doing this. You can, you can kind of try and do an exhaustive search of all of the combinations of parameters, hopefully, that you can find. Um, but, that, but in practice, that ends up being pretty, a pretty bad approach. Um, yes, if you wait long enough for you know, all, of the, all of the combinations to have been tried, then, then you'll have a good idea of what was a good combination. Um, but it can just take a really long time. And, and, and often with these things, it's a little bit like programming. You, when you start a job running like that that might run for hours and hours and hours, it might only be five hours in or a few days in that you realize, oh, hang on, I messed something up. <laughs> uh, oh, God, I, you know, uh, or, or, maybe, oh, or, or, maybe, or maybe you have this light bulb go off and you go, wait, I could have included this extra data in there and I think that would give it extra accuracy. Okay, okay, scrap everything that I've done. I'm going to rerun the experiment. Um, so there's that sort of thing as well. Um, so so there, are, there are techniques out there and, and you can use SageMaker to do this as well. It, it will sort of try and auto-tune your hyperparameters for you. Um, but it typically takes hours, if not days, to run these sorts of jobs because, um, you know, they're spinning up big instances and they're often using techniques that are very, fairly serial in nature so they need to wait um, for a couple of different parameters to have been tried before they before they say okay maybe if i move in this direction um, it'll be a better set of parameters and uh, it can just take a very long time but there are some algorithms out there um, the simplest of course which would be a random search so just randomize all the parameters try that um, and see how you go and then randomize them again try that now that's that's a perfect case for where you could do a parallel search because you could just start up thousands of searches all with completely different random parameters um, and then they'd all you know maybe take roughly the same time to finish um, doing this these sort of training jobs and then you come back and you you just pick the one that had the best accuracy um, that actually works surprisingly well and it's <laughs> there are 
in in the world of hyperparameter tuning, there's a lot of algorithms that really struggle to beat random search as a as a baseline. You know, a bit, a bit like in the drug world, beating the placebo is really hard. Um, it, it's similar to that with with hyperparameter tuning. That, but this particular algorithm uses a random search, but does it in a few phases. It'll you know, the first phase, it'll spin up thousands with different random parameters. Then then the next phase, it might, you know, cut that in half, do a bit of a binary search and say, okay, the ones, half of the ones that, that were the best, let's test them again and, and change them slightly. You know, that, that's a very simple way of thinking of the algorithm. Um, and I just thought it was a perfect use case for Lambda because I was like, you know, I... Um, I'm sitting here completely in the dark, um, you know, testing on my local laptop all these different sorts of parameters, and and you know, I, I feel like I'm just in the dark. I'd love to just be able to to do this ten thousand times, and then it come back to me and and say, hey, here's the best combination of parameters. So so I got I got fast text, which is a native binary. I mean, this machine learning binary um, built compiling on Lambda, you know, using my Docker Lambda. That was pretty easy. Uh, and then just created a Lambda function that in, that called out to the binary. Um, there are some limitations. Obviously, um, you need you only have 500 megabytes of disk space. So if you were needing to train on data that was bigger than that, well, you just you couldn't do it at the moment, or at least you couldn't train on all of the data in a single Lambda. You'd need to come up with a clever technique to split that up. But the, the data I was training on, you know, 500 megabytes, quite a lot for text. Um, I think I was training on 50,000 articles or something like that. Um, and so, so that was fine. Um, wasn't going to run into any limitations there. And, and so I could just do a test run and, and each Lambda I would invoke with a different set of parameters. Um, and then, you know, use, use sort of just a coordination process to then once the first batch had finished, um, use this Asher algorithm to figure out okay which ones which set of parameters do I keep and then try and manipulate. Um, but you know I was getting results within I mean even within the first five or ten seconds because I was spinning up three thousand lambdas in parallel. You know and that's three thousand experiments being run in parallel. You're going to get quite good results unless unless the space the hyperparameter space you're trying to search you know the number of parameters is incredibly large. Um, three thousand covers a fair bit of that space um so already within the first launch you're getting very good results and then you know if you're successive uh, successively sort of um um narrowing down that search space yeah within 30 seconds i got uh, basically a state-of-the-art result um because because i i then i then went back and benchmarked it on some of the data sets that they use in, in in the papers um and yeah, I was getting state-of-the-art results within 30 seconds, whereas I, I tried the same thing on SageMaker and it was, you know, within half an hour, it still hadn't um, returned a result that was anywhere near as good as what I got on Lambda. So I think for for um, things like this, um, the, and there are plenty of other examples that you could imagine um, in the, the AI ML world, um, um, reinforcement learning is another perfect example like you know game playing anything like this where it's um, you, you're trying to tune an algorithm and, and spin up many many instances um, and run many sort of games in parallel or many environments in parallel anything like this um, I think Lambda is a, a great use case for it and, and there are some limitations at the moment but um, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that AWS will you know, just in, bump them up a little bit, increase them a little bit, um, and and then 
Lambda will, it'll, it'll become a supercomputer. Um, right. That's just, that's just yeah. going to say that that's the use case, right? I mean, that's the, that's where we're getting to where that promise of, of Lambda and, and that parallel computing being, being that supercomputer is there. And, um, and I'll just say, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time working on, um, some NLP stuff, um, and then using the output of NLP to do mm-hmm. some like multi-class classification stuff with Bayesian, right. like, I mean, it, but honestly, like it's all, I mean, it works well. It works really, really well. But the stuff you're talking about is just, it's insane. And, and it's, uh, and the fact that you're pushing the limits is, is pretty crazy. So, all right. So again, we've been talking for a very long time. I've got one more thing to ask you because you and I agree on this. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I want you to share your real world use case here because people ask this question all the time. Some people think it's an anti-pattern. Um, lambdas calling lambdas. There's right. reasons why you would do this, and you have some very good reasons for that, right? It's true. Um, so I, I'll, I'll start off with I think what why most people um, suggest it's a, it's a, it's not a best practice to call a lambda from another lambda, um, and I think that's a they're 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 specifically talking about a synchronous use case. So when you're using the re- request response. Um, mode of invoking a lambda. So you're, you're invoking the lambda, you're waiting for it to finish, and then you're using um, the output of it to then do something yourself. Um, so, you know, there are some obvious caveats with that. One is, well, um, if the timeout of the lambda you're calling is greater than your timeout um, and it runs for a really long time, you might time out before the other lambda um, comes back. Uh, so that, that's one thing to think about. And then the other thing to think about, of course, is um, if you are doing things at massive concurrency, then you might be hitting your, getting close to your limits. Um, and if you don't have sort of per function concurrency set up or anything like that, um, you might be getting yourself in a situation where, um, you know, you, you're, you're, chewing through your concurrency basically because you're, you're calling, you're chaining your lambdas and you're calling them like that. Um, and uh, actually Joe Emerson just pointed out on Twitter another, another reason why people say this is because they, perhaps they think that people have split up their, their, um, their functionality into, into lots of different functions um, and they're trying to compose them in a way that would really be better just composed in a single lambda itself. Exactly. I 100% yeah. agree with that. If you're, if you're literally just trying to like call a method from another class, uh, <laughs> don't turn that class into another function unless, unless there's an incredibly good reason for it to, to be living, um, you know, like it's managed by another team or something like that, then that, I think that's a good use case. Um, so, so I think that's why people say that. I think the, the, of course, the simple comeback is, well, hang on, but Lambda is just another API. Are you saying that I shouldn't call any API from my Lambda? Um, uh, and people might go, well, no, you can call other APIs. Maybe just don't call Lambda from Lambda. It's, it's, it's an anti-pattern. And you go, well, hang on, if I can call other APIs, what if that API is backed by Lambda? <laughs> you know, what, uh, what, what's the logic? You know, you, you need to give people a reason, I think, for why you're saying this is a bad practice. Um, there, there are certainly use cases, I think, where asynchronous patterns work um, well. Um, and, and I think... This is true for any any um, 
any microservices, regardless of if you're using Lambda or not. If you're, if you're needing to wait 10, 20 seconds for an API to get back to you, um, and, and this is a request that a user is waiting on, there's probably a better way to architect your app, you know, yeah. and, and that's where um, SNS um, or SQS or, you know, some, using some sort of messaging system is probably a good idea and having an architecture in place that you can return early to the user and then, and then go back and poll. But, um, but you can invoke lambdas asynchronously, you know, that, like the idea of, of putting a message on an SNS queue and then that SNS, when that SNS message gets picked up by a lambda, um, it does something. I would say, well, think about what you're actually getting from that on top of just the Lambda asynchronously invoking the other Lambda because you can do that. You can, you know, just say, uh, call this using the event um, invocation style um, and that API call will return within milliseconds. It'll invoke the other Lambda. It'll go and do its thing and it'll return within milliseconds. Um, now, bypasses all that API gateway stuff. Right, bypasses all the API gateway stuff. It's It's incredibly low latency. There's no... Um, you know, it's it, it's very fast, um, assuming that you haven't run into a cold start or something like that. But um, yeah, it, with it's probably as fast as calling SNS, you know, in a lot of cases. Um, so so I th- I think it's perfectly valid for that. I think um, I'm 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 actually the sort of person that prefers to have much less architecture. Um, I think I think. I think queues and and notification systems and things like that can be really useful. Um, and especially, you know, well, if you get a dead letter queue for free um, and it's something that you can go revisit later, um, that's that's a good use case. I think you know for having queues and if you if you if you need to throttle things and there are plenty of plenty of reasons, obviously, for having these things in place. I just, I prefer to start without them. And I think you'd be surprised at how, how far along you can get without needing some sort of intermediary. Um, and, and it probably saves you a lot of headache. And, and look, maybe if it fails, you log it, and then you have an alert on your logs. Like, you know, like there are, it's not as though um, there aren't patterns for dealing with, um, dealing with this. Yeah. And I mean, I, I so I, just my my quick two cents on this is I do this all the time where uh, you usually don't want to wait for a synchronous request from a customer, goes through API gateway, hits a Lambda function, and then that Lambda function has to call another Lambda function to get something and then return it back. Although I will say when you build other services, you might have a user service, you might have an article service, whatever it is, that one of those services does need to grab some data in order to denormalize into its own service that it's pretty fast. And if you set low timeouts, you know, so you say, listen, if this doesn't respond within three seconds, then I'm just going to go back, I'm going to send it to an SQSQ or I'm going to you know, log it somehow mm-hmm. and fail back to the customer or say to the customer, hey, we got it. All right, we'll we'll deal with this. You know, we'll we'll deal with mm-hmm. it later. Um, I think that's a perfectly good use case because you're just calling an HTTP connection right, when right. you're calling Stripe. The or There's you're nothing calling... special. There's nothing special about Lambda in this um, respect. It's exactly. It's like exactly. this is just sort of best practices. If you were calling any API, or if you were writing any API, that um, um, if you're waiting for many, 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 many seconds, then you might want to deal with that. Um, and, and, and those are the sorts of use cases where I, I think, um, okay, fine, that's, that's perhaps not a good practice. Um, yeah. Um, I, you, you actually, you asked me, um, we, we use this at Bustle. So we um, have, 
we have a, a lambda that does um, that renders our front end HTML code. It's it's a Preact app. It does server side rendering of the HTML that it, it delivers to the um, you know to to the browser um, via API gateway and a CDN and, and things like that. Um, but it calls our other lambda directly, um, which which is our GraphQL backend. Um, it calls that to, to pull in the data that it needs to render the HTML page. Um, now, in, in the browser, it also um, will call that GraphQL backend, but it'll do it via API Gateway. Um, you know, it'll because it's coming from the browser, so it needs it needs to make um, an unauthenticated HTTP request into the function. Um, but when you're in the Lambda world, well, that Lambda can just call that Lambda directly um, and and get the call the GraphQL. Lambda and that and that goes to Redis and Elasticsearch and wherever it needs to pull the data and send it back. Um, and we just make sure we have the timeouts tuned such that you know. It, I mean, it never it, it responds within milliseconds anyway. It's not exactly. it's not even a yeah. thing we've really run into. Um, but if it if it didn't, I mean, you build in that resiliency, right? You, right. you just figure out what do I do if it does what do I fail? Do if, it, if it times but, out, yeah. You know, the happy path on these things, which is ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time, or whatever right. it is. Um, usually is going to give you lower, uh, you know, a low enough latency that these things don't matter. And then the other thing I'd say too is uh, oftentimes when you send a request that is asynchronous, um, that asynchronous Lambda function that's running, um, you have a little bit more flexibility. You can wait a little bit longer if you have to make some synchronous calls from, you know, once it's disconnected from the front end, who cares if it takes a little bit of extra time? I mean, there's some tuning you might want to do there from a cost standpoint. Um, right. But if you need to pull data from four different APIs in order to compile some, you know, some object that gets saved, so then it's denormalized and accessible from a by a customer with a single uh, call to DynamoDB, do that. Like it's just a good, it's a good way to do it, in my opinion, anyways. And I, I do it all the time and never. No, have no, hundred percent agree. And I think this is this is actually the thing. It's it's a pet peeve I have with a lot of the. The sort of best practices that you know that you see a lot of the thought leaders in our space out there talking about um, best practices are like a spectrum. It's it's not it's they're not yes. binary and and there are there are things that people tell you you shouldn't do from a lambda or whatever. Um, but it's like if if a if you know what you're doing, of course, do it. But b just know what the sort of failure failure cases are, and if it's like, um, oh, okay, if I if I do this bad practice and my function's going to fail like half a percent of the time, and I know exactly how to deal with it when it does fail, then you forget about it. Um, you know, and I think this is true for things like, oh, I don't. Don't make uh, TCP connections from your Lambda and things like that. It's like, well, well, why? You know, let's break down why that's considered a best practice, uh, a, a bad practice, or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, because you're making TCP connections every time you call HTTP. So, um, and little things like this, even even like having large Lambdas and you know that sort of thing. It's like, well, measure it first. See if it's really a problem yeah, for you. Right. Um, don't don't try and and yeah prematurely optimize um because i'll tell you we we at bustle we have very large we have very few very large lambdas and we do billions of invocations a month you know we do um many 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 page views um and our latencies are very low um and it's it's not 
perhaps as bad as you think. It, there are certain tricks you might need to do, like like you, um, we webpack all of our JavaScript into sure. one single file, right? Um, so that there's no there's no file system calls being made um, whenever it's it's required, um, and and we minify it. And it, so there might be people that go, oh, that that's kind of a gross hack. But well, all right, for us that's fine. You know, we we've got plenty of developers that know how to do that and that are that are comfortable um, doing that, and and would be less comfortable managing. Um, 50 or 100 tiny functions, uh, maybe, uh, and dealing with with the ops of that because it's not it's not free. You know, a function isn't a zero cost piece of infrastructure. You, you still need to monitor them. You still need to maybe tune them. You still need, there's a whole bunch of things that every function you have. You you need to think about uh, a little bit and monitor and that sort of thing. So, yeah. So so even things like that. Um, I think that there's this there's a spectrum for best practices, and, and I would say try things out first. Yeah. Um, maybe be be aware that it's a it's a lever that you can pull, but but try them out first, and don't and don't stress too much about um, having the perfect. Um, there's there's no single way to do these things, basically. No. And I and and this is the last thing I'll drop in here is the fact that even if even if it's not cost optimized i mean unless you go from like 0 to a billion invocations mm-hmm. like you know on on day 1 um you're not the, the cost is going to be low enough that you can experiment with this stuff and uh and eventually get to a point where um you know you'll 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 get you'll get it tuned the way you you need to but right yeah yeah, so, yeah i agree right. and 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 typically the sort of cost tuning that you're doing uh is going to be nothing compared with the the time cost or the people cost or whatever, whatever, right. you know, it is that exactly. you would have, that you would have spent in the extra development trying to do something in a particular way, probably. Like you could, for a $180,000 a year engineer spends right. five weeks to figure out how you can save $50 on your Lambda yeah, function. Yeah, no, you um, end up doing these calculations in your head all the time as a CTO. <laughs> and it's, it's like, yeah, forget it. I mean, this is the CI, Crazy. the CI argument as well. I'm like, see, CI seems to be this last bastion of where we're, we're still actually willing to accept multiple minutes of something happening. It's like, what? <laughs> no, this stuff should be immediate. It should, and we shouldn't be accepting anything less. Um, yeah. All right. Well, listen, this has been awesome. I, honestly, if, if uh, this should be a 500 level course at uh, reInvent, they don't even have 500 level courses, I don't think. Um, but seriously, this was this was great, and and the stuff that you're doing, uh, obviously AWS Service Hero, and all these cool things you're doing, this this Yumda thing, I think is going to be a huge game changer. It's going to open up a whole bunch of use cases for people that um, you know right now might be compiling these things to Docker or or, or using an EC2 instance. Um, so how can how can people find out more about you so they can stay up to date with all the stuff you're working on? Right, so I am Heichel Mart on Twitter, which is just Michael Hart, but with the first two letters swapped. Um, I'm the same on Medium. I am M Hart on GitHub. And that's H-A-R-T. Correct. Awesome. All right, I'm going to get all that into the show notes. Thanks again, Michael. Thanks, Jeremy. It was great, as always. That's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Michael Hart for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 19. 
For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. Thank you.